We are finishing up our sermon series through Nehemiah. Today is the last uh, Nehemiah text, and everyone goes, aw, right? And here's, here's what I loved about Nehemiah. I felt like, man, it was such a providential <clears throat> time for us to be able to go through the book of Nehemiah as a community. Um, there were so many things that, as, as God, as the Holy Spirit highlighted these chapters to us and pointed out the truth of really who we are and, and the challenge of who we're meant to be in Jesus. Uh, I, from, a, from a leading a church standpoint, I don't think it could have come at a better time for us. And if you remember things about how the walls are being uh, rebuilt and the gates are being rebuilt and um, how the, the, the nation was coming back together and how there were times where it was beautiful and it was exciting and it was encouraging and, there were, there were, and then there were times where there was opposition and the people were tired because they were working all the time and wanted to give out um, and you know how it was birthed in prayer and how we saw over and over again about how the relationships work together and remember how we said we're a we're an all-y'all kind of a church. Remember that? And how Nehemiah helps us to see that we're an all-y'all kind of people, that there's no such thing as, you know, that's your job and this is my job and, you know, I don't need to do that. I don't need to participate. And it, it was this encouragement for us to be shoulder to shoulder and stand with a sword ready to fight, right, in one hand, and yet a, a, a trowel or a shovel or a pick or some kind of garden tool or whatever to build in, in the other hand. And so these people were ready to fight, but they were also ready to build. And then we saw also where, you know, if there were, the enemy was threatening all the time, like, hey, I'm going to come against you. And I, what you're doing, I'm going to stop it. And if you continue to work, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to fight you. And we're going to kill you. And, and Nehemiah said, listen, if you see the enemy approaching, sound the trumpet wherever you are, and we will come rushing toward you. And the Lord our God, who is great and awesome, will fight for you. And remember how we talked about, listen, we're all in this together, but we're not in this alone. We're not meant to like carry our burden by ourselves only if we start getting in trouble and we start saying, hey, I need some help. We, we sound our trumpet and we rally together. And this has been such a good book. Now, here's the thing about Nehemiah. It doesn't end the way you expect it to end. Uh, it is very much like an indie film. You know, ever watch an indie film? Um, nowadays, I don't know what the heck culture, I mean, it's like, well, we need to make movies that are about reality. If I wanted that, I'd watch a documentary. When I watch a movie, I want to escape from reality. I want a happy ending, right? That's why I paid what is it, 12 bucks now, $13 to go sit in a movie theater and spend $50 on a little thing of popcorn. That's why I spend all that money, because I want to escape reality. I don't want to end with some sad ending. I, uh, we, I watched this movie called No Country for Old Men, and uh, I'm not recommending that movie because there's some harsh stuff in the end, but I remember watching this thinking, okay, the bad guy's finally going to get it at the end. And, and you see the bad guy, he finally, it seems like this is about to happen. If you haven't seen the movie, sorry, I'm spoiling it for you. But he, he, he commits this last act of atrocity, and finally, for the first time, and it's at the end of the movie, the cop sirens start sounding, and you think, this is it. They're going to get him, and what happens? Absolutely nothing happens at the end of the movie. The bad guy gets away, the good guys die, and that's how the movie ends. And you're left feeling like, 
what the heck? I spent this money to feel terrible. <laughs> well, to be honest, Nehemiah ends in kind of the same way. It's like this, I mean, theologians and people who are way smarter than me say that this is what's called an anti-climax in Scripture. And it's on purpose. Now, why would this be on purpose? Why, to be honest, if I was writing Nehemiah and I was recording the history of Israel, I'd be really tempted to do a Disney kind of ending here and just say, and they lived happily ever after, right? And we could go away from this book. We'd all hear this morning in church and say, oh, this is about us in a community. And what we've done is we've, we've looked at all these encouragements. We looked at all the, the temptations. We looked at all the, the warning signs, but we learned from it. And we were a better, better people because of it. And we look back at 2019 and at, at the end of summer when we ended up, I remember five years ago, remember how that ended? Oh, and now look at where we are. We're in such a better place. But Nehemiah does what no, no country for old men does. And it kind of ends and just goes, what? This is really unsatisfying. This is, this is disappointing. But it does that for a reason. It does that on purpose for us this morning. And, and here's what I want us to be aware of as a community. Here's what I want us, there, there's, a, there's a dual message for us as we look at Nehemiah. One, it's for us as a community as a body of believers, as a church, as a local church in a geographical location. Here on this place, we're meant to say together, who are we called to be and what are we supposed to do and what are we supposed to not do as a people? And we look at Nehemiah, but then also for us as individuals, we say, who am I as a person? What has God called me to do and what has God called me to be, to be vigilant against? And so as we look at this last chapter this morning, let's put on those lenses, both as a community, but also as individual people, and always uh, laying our heart before God, because I think that this morning there's a message for, for us as a, as a people. And um, it's not going to end sad for us this morning, all right? It's going to end great, all right? So spoiler alert. So here's the big thing about what Nehemiah is teaching us at the end of the chapter. Um, let me say it this way in an illustration. Uh, when we lived in Texas, about two hours away, there was this river called the Guadalupe River. And it was through this town called New Braunfels. And it was famous for people kind of getting away. And what you would do is you would float the river. I don't know if they have stuff like this here. But this river would just, it had a really slow current. It wasn't like rapids. It wasn't really exciting. Uh, there wasn't many times where you felt this thrill of being in the rapids. What it was is it was kind of a chill kind of thing to do. So you'd hire a company. You would, uh, you would get an inner tube. A lot of people would get like a cooler, you know, the cooler floats, and they would put their beverages in there um, and whatever your propensity is towards is, you know, and, and what you would do is you kind of like, you would get this rope and you would get, if you had friends, you would string this rope between all your inner tubes and you would just hang out and you would sit there and you would talk and, you know, the, the, you would get suntanned and, but the water was nice and cool and refreshing. And what you didn't notice was that this river was just slowly drifting along. Now, when you, got, when you hired this company, they tell you, hey, look out for this sign. It's about, uh, about an hour uh, or maybe two hours, however long. But there are these signs along the river, and you need to keep play, uh, pay 
special attention to them because if you're not paying attention, what happens is you'll just drift past it and then we won't be able to come pick you up. This would happen quite often with people. They would drink too much beer and then they would not be paying attention. Some people would just kind of pass out in the sun and then they would find themselves like three in the morning, where am I, right? At the end of the bottom of the river. And the reason why this was so dangerous is not because of the rapids. It wasn't like a class five rapid river. It was a zero class. But if you didn't notice that you were just kind of drifting along. And what we see here in the end of this chapter is a drift. You see that the, the people, remember in chapter 10, they make these oaths. They say, we commit to the, the grace of God, we're responding to God's grace, and so we will commit our lives to him. We, we will give all of who we are. We will, we will surrender everything that we have over to God. We will keep his statutes. We'll do whatever it takes to be known as the people of God. And that's chapter 10, and in chapter 13, we're going to see what happens here. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to chapter 13, and we're going to pick up in verses 4 through 9. And the first area that I want us to be aware of is the fact that we drift in our wholeheartedness to God. And this is what the example is for us this morning. It says, let me get my Bible, that'd be helpful, right? Chapter 13, verse 4 through 9. We're going to read a lot of text this morning, so stick with me. It says, now before this, this is Nehemiah speaking, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. So let's just pause there for a second. Do you guys remember who Tobiah is? If, you, if you're tracking with us, if you've been keeping up to date with the, sto the story, Tobiah was the enemy of Israel. Tobiah was the guy who kept threatening them and saying, remember I, I made the little voice of the minion guys like, yes, even if a fox jumps on that wall, it'll fall down, right? And it, that's the same guy who said, you better stop what you're doing or we're going to come and kill you. And now we see that the priest has made a room for the enemy. Pick up in verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that he... Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. It's almost like an angry girlfriend when she keeps her, finds her boyfriend cheating. She just throws all the stuff out the window, right? She's just like, uh-uh, not this time. Boom. You could go pick up your crap. It's in the street. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain offering and the frankincense. So here we see on one chapter, the, the Israelites say, no, 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 we're going to set apart for God all that he requires, the offerings, the sacrifices, the, the beautiful things, the precious things. We're going to put those and we're going to make a special place for them because they're important. And God has called us to reserve this area for him. Chapter 13, what ends up happening? The guy who's in charge of this 
who's, who's meant to lead the charge, who's meant to say, remember Israel, why we've set apart this, these things uh, to God because God is great, ends up giving it over to not just the common people, ends up giving it over to Tobiah, the enemy of Israel and of God. How in the world can this happen? Why wasn't anyone in Israel offended by this? Why wasn't just someone come up to them and say, what do you do? What you're doing is wrong. Why does it take Nehemiah to hear about this from miles away and have to come back and restore order? It's because their hearts have drifted like that river slowly drifted away. Now, when I talk about our wholeheartedness, the reality is that most of us in here don't wrestle with major, scary, turbulent kind of sins. You know, if I were to give you the example of the, the class five rapids and I say, you know, it's like, it's like murder, outright murder. And, and, and you know, you, you guys are jumping into the, the rapids of murder. How dare you? No, it's not like that. It's just a slow, dull lull that continues. And most of us here say, well, I don't wrestle with, with murder. We might wrestle with anger and murder in our hearts at times. But most of us, it's not the big, scary things that get us. It's the slow drift. And we see that here. And to take this even further, we talk about how this storehouse was meant to be set aside for the things of God and for him, offerings unto God. Think about your heart. Think about how we compartmentalize our heart. Think about how oftentimes we we look at our hearts and we think, okay, 90% of it is surrendered to the Lord. 80% 80% of it, I'm at least getting a B, a B minus. Or 70%, at least I'm passing with a C. And if we were to take an inward look at our hearts, if we could somehow spiritually see the, the compartments of our hearts, I'd have to ask us the question, are there areas of our hearts this morning that we have somehow slowly drifted over to giving over to the things of the world that are meant to be only over to the things of God? Are there areas where you're saying, man, I didn't even realize I fell asleep, I'm sunburned, I'm at the end of the river, someone needs to come and pick me up because I fell asleep, and you here this morning are thinking, yeah, that's true of my heart. I know that there's areas where I have slowly drifted and compartmentalized, and the areas that I once was so passionate about, I I was reformed, and I I said, God, you can have all of who I am, and he came and he reformed me, and he changed me from this way to this, and I said, no, give it all, and then... And as time kind of happened, I slowly drifted into saying, this little area nobody really goes into in the house. It's okay to just store the things of the enemy. It's okay to kind of give my heart over to these little things. They're not really big and bad. They're not obvious. No one would look at my life and say, oh, what are you doing? That's really terrible. No, everyone looks from the outside and goes, hey, you're doing pretty well. But that's not our story, and that's not what God's called us to be as a people. Remember how we talked about last week, Christianity really doesn't work unless we're all in. There's nothing in this world that really works unless we're all in. Marianne, how would you feel if I 70% loved you, but 30% loved some other woman? You probably wouldn't like that very much. I wouldn't like it. Is there anything in this world that works that way? No. Why should we think that that is okay? 
with our Christianity? How have you drifted? How have you allowed the things of this world to catch your eye? What else do we drift in? Not only do we drift in wholeheartedness, but we, this is kind of a, a really, you know, I mean, wholeheartedness is the big picture, right? And then what it tends to do is it manifests in other ways, and I think this is one of them we see here, is that we drift in our giving to God. Uh, look at verses 10 through 13. Nehemiah continues, and he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan, Hanan the, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to, be, was to distribute to their brothers. Now, just... Look at this phrase and keep this in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to this. But in verse 14, it says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So they drift in their wholeheartedness, but it starts to affect actual, tangible, real areas of their life. They, they begin to like start saying, well, this was where we used to tie. This was where we would give to the storehouse, but we no longer do that. And it caused all these, it caused the system of Israel, what God had called Israel to do, especially in the area of worship and reconciliation to God, how the priests would minister to God for the people. It caused that system to break down. And it caused chaos in the, in the sacrificial system. It caused, it caused the, the people who were meant to be paid to, to be able to continue what God had set up. It caused them to have to go and flee to their own homes when they were supposed to be at the temple because the people started to lose sight and started to drift in their wholeheartedness. So why not money? Now here's the thing about money. Money is the number one thing <laughs> that reveals where our heart is, right? If you've ever sat in church, you're gonna hear me say what every preacher has said is that look at your bank statement and it'll tell you kind of where your heart lays. Look at how you spend your money and it'll tell you what you deem most important. Look at how you save your money and it'll tell you what you think you need to save your money for. It's a scary thing sometimes to look at our bank account because what it does is it reveals the truth of our heart. It reveals that sometimes we put more hope, we put more value in stuff than the one who gives us the stuff, right? That's, that's what's called idol worship. None of us here this morning probably don't have little idols in our houses that we bow down to and we sacrifice little statues of wood or stone. Most of us don't have little shrines in our homes. And we would say, oh, that's idol worship. But actually, idol worship is when we start to worship the things 
over the one who created the things, right? And so what we start to do is saying, I, I, I love the things that the creator gives me, and, I, and I, what I do is I hold them up higher than the one who actually created them. That's idol worship. And it doesn't even have to be things like money. It could be a relationship. It could be a circumstance where we, we give all our effort and energy in. And when our wholeheartedness, when, we're, when it's divided up, we're prone to be able to drift in our giving. Malachi, this is what Malachi actually prophesies during this time to this nation. This is what he says in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Like this question is saying, what, what have we really done? Have we really done anything that bad? I mean, we've just been kind of drifting. We didn't dive into murder. The, we didn't dive into the obvious things. Like it kind of seems okay what we're doing. And then verse 8 says, will man rob, rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? And then we see in chapter 13, Malachi answers for them in your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Let, let's just stop this. I know that a lot of pastors and preachers and the church has used this scripture as a manipulation. So you're robbing God, don't rob God. I want to say that this is a beautiful grace and a promise to us. Here's why. Why were they robbing why were they not giving? It's because there was fear in their hearts that if I give over to God the things that he's asking me to give 100% of, there won't be anything left for me to enjoy. That's what we do. When we tithe, we're like, we drop it in the, you know, the little plate, whatever. We, we have boxes, whatever. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we know of someone in need and we feel God's putting on our heart to be generous and hospitable to them, but it's hard because why? There's this fear that if I give, I won't get in return what I need or what I desire. Malachi prophesies and says, listen, when you give, God's bigger than the little amount that you're giving to him. Trust God in that. Put him to the test even. That's the only area in scripture that says, test me. Put me to the test that I am bigger than the fear of you wanting to give away the things that you think you're not going to get in return. And that's an encouragement for us. And I'm not just talking money because money is what we are talking about. But it's in every area of our life, right? We hold back. We hold back worship. We hold back giving. We hold back relationally. We hold back our time, whatever is our energy, etc. Why? Because if I give, I may not have anything left for me. We not just only drift in our giving, we drift in our dependence on God. This is what verses 15 through 22 say. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath, 
if you're newer to the faith and you're like, what's the Sabbath? This is a day set apart that the nation was meant to focus on God, to rest, and to give all their energy, all their thoughts, attention toward God and trust that God was enough. And so it was a means of God's grace to a nation to say, hey, you don't just work and work and work and work and work and work and try to get ahead and try to get ahead. No, there needs to be a day set apart where you remember who you're called to be and who, who I am. And it's a day of trust. It's a day of refilling our souls. Okay, so, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they had sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in, the, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil, like he uses the word evil, evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us, on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Uh, verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until the Sabbath. Until, sorry, after the Sabbath. And I, I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice a week. It was kind of like, you know, you're waiting for those concert tickets, right? But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's not like, I'm going to pray for you, all right? <laughs> my kids... There's this new phrase, say, I'm going to lay hands. No, no, no. Oh, catch these hands. All right. It's always changing. I'm going to throw I don't know. I'm old. Just, I can't remember these. But lay hands means I'm going to beat you up. All right? I'm going to punch you in the face. That's the Kelly translation. That's what he's saying. Um, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Oh. Hey, it's in Scripture. I think we're going to implement some of this. I love it. It's really good. Okay, just kidding. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this, here it is again, also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now, why is this related to our dependence on God? Why? Because it talks about this Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day set apart. And what was happening was Israel was realizing, you know what? We actually make some money when we work on the Sabbath. How many businesses, I, mean, I don't know if you remember, but I can still remember, I'm old enough to remember Sundays, a lot of businesses were closed. I don't know if you remember that growing up as a kid. Nowadays, and I think 7-Eleven is uh, one of the catalysts that kind of changed the culture in America where they went to a 24-7 culture. They were kind of the, one of the first pioneers to do this. Now, for those of us living in a consumeristic culture, we all go, this is amazing. Even on Sunday, I can go and get what I want, and I can go and I can make money. And now what happens is this culture starts to change, and everybody starts being open on Sundays, right? You, you go to a restaurant and say, we will be open Christmas Day, and people applaud it. I want to say, that is from the gates of hell. 
No. And, and, and you see this happening. Why is this happening? Because they start to go, oh, well, we can make some money. We're starting to profit. We're starting to benefit ourselves. Our idols are starting to get fulfilled. That little compartment of my wholeheartedness that I set apart was for God, but now I set apart for me and the money stuff, I'm starting to fill it up with some coin. And Nehemiah says, what you're doing is evil. It's demonic because it's self-centered. And what you've done is you've you, you've drifted from this dependence on God. God, you're more than enough, so I don't even need to work on a Sabbath. I will trust you that this one day, you're going to be able to provide me, for me the rest of the time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to drift from that and say, actually, we're not meeting ends at the moment. I think we need to go to a Sunday strategy because everyone else is doing it. And we drift. We drift in our dependence where God says, I'm enough. I'm actually more than enough. And if you trust me, I will prove it to you. If you trust me and you keep the Sabbath, so to speak, holy in your life, if you will continue to give me all of who you are and you will continue to put your dependence on me, I will give to you what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the problem with that is that sometimes we want to like stick all the daily bread into a storehouse. Remember how the Israelites did with manna? Remember what they did when the manna would fall, they would collect it in baskets, and then they tried to store it, and then the next day what they would find is full of maggots, and it was rotten. Why would God allow a supernatural heavenly food to rot? Because he wanted them dependent to go collect it every day and put their dependence on God to say, no, we need the manna from heaven. We need to go collect it. We can't store it so that we don't have to work. Same thing's happening here in Nehemiah. Same thing happens in our own personal walk. Same thing happens with churches. Same thing happens in cultures and societies where we drift from our dependence on God. Last area, how are you guys doing? Doing okay? All right, last area. We drift in our holiness. Look at the rest of the chapter. It says this in verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. Now let me just, I, I want to be very strong and say this is not talking about interracial marriage as it's, it's evil, okay? Um, and so that's not what Scripture is saying here. There's a reason why they were for, forbidden to marry interracially. It's because, well, well, we'll talk about it here in a second, but I just want to make that clear, okay? Um, verse 25, And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. So he said, I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm going to pull out your hair. I mean, Nehemiah doesn't mess around. You think you've ever been in a legalistic church? Or the pastor? <laughs> you ain't got nothing on Nehemiah, okay? Um, and, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, 
or for yourselves. Does this sound familiar, what we read before, what they would oath and said they weren't going to do? Now he's making them do it again. Verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Okay, again, it's not saying women are evil, all right? Or foreign women are evil. We're going to see why this was forbidden. Verse 27, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehadiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of who? Sanballat. Hmm. Does that same name sound familiar? So we got Tobiah, we got Sanballat, both enemies of Israel. Little conflict of interest going on here. Uh, the, the Oronite, therefore I chased him from me. I mean, man, Nehemiah is awesome. Okay. Remember me, remember then, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering and appointed times, and for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, if it's not talking about interracial marriage, how it's evil, if it's not saying women uh, are bad, and it, well, then what is this saying? Why does Nehemiah forbid Israel from marrying foreigners? It's because nothing can change your culture, uh, uh, affect your, your philosophy of life like marriage. Uh, we're doing some premarital counseling. Uh, congratulations, you guys just got married over there, back there. Um, <laughs> One of the things we're, we're, we're talking is like, hey, you have these two philosophies in your life, right? And the reason conflict happens is because you have a philosophy that life should be this way, and she or he has a philosophy that should, life should be this way, and sometimes, right, sometimes, they don't mesh up well together. And it's like, well, whose philosophy is going to win? What you find up happening is any period who's been married for any period of time, you can attest to this, is that you start thinking like your wife or your husband. You start knowing what your wife or husband is going to say. You know the foods they like, the preferences. And then the things that you may have held so dear when you first got married, you start actually preferring the things that they like. So Marianne loves dance shows. When we were first dating, I was like, dance shows? That's, that's terrible. Who wants to watch that? Now, what do we do? Babe, you want to watch So You Think You Can Dance? Yeah, totally want to watch it. I love these dance shows. Sometimes I'm sitting there crying because I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like the common grace of God is being displayed in this person. And the arts are coming, you know, whatever. I, I wouldn't have never loved that stuff before. Now I love it. Nehemiah tells him, listen, you're bringing an un- a, a culture that doesn't worship God into your home. And you're not just bringing it in your home, you are becoming one with it. When scripture says the two shall become one flesh, it's because when you're married, you become that person, that person becomes you. 
So we drift in our holiness. Not only, it's not just marriage, though. It's this drift when our hearts are, are compartmentalized and we start giving over to the things of this world. We, un, we start allowing like, that slow drift to come into our heart. And now all of a sudden, what Scripture kind of holds is like we look at it and go, man, that's hardcore. That's for hardcore Christians who do or don't do that. No, the reality is that's just Christianity 101. We can look at verses like Timothy and Titus and talk about quali- qualifications for pastors and deacons, and we go, man, that's like, that's like if you're like top echelon Christianity. Uh-uh. That's just normal Christianity. And we, we somehow think we haven't drifted away from holiness because that's kind of like for the hardcore guys. No, Christianity is you're all in, you're not in. It's all or nothing. But when our heart is given over to the things of the world, our identity, our holiness, our, you know what holiness is? It's just being other than. It's being set apart. God is holy. That means that he is so other than us. He is perfect and we're not. He is, he is high and transcendent and we're not. He's holy and we're called to be holy like God. We're called to be a holy people. Have you drifted in your holiness? Has there been things that you participate in where you think, no big deal. It's just a little thing here, a little thing there. Now, here's how I want to end this. I'm out of time. I have so much more to say. I always have too much to say. I always talk too much. Marianne, you just need to, like, say, stop talking, all right? But... But now, remember how we said at the beginning, this book ends kind of like, man, and that's how it ends. It just talks about how they went their own way and everybody did what they wanted, and it was kind of sad, and like Nehemiah is like saying, God, remember me. Here's the problem. If you and I look at the end of this chapter and say, Kelly, give me three things to help me not be to help me not drift. All right, you know, read my Bible every day. Yeah, good one. Uh-huh. Pray every day. Yeah, good one. Uh, stay in church. Okay, good. And so what I could do this morning, if I was preaching just a moral lesson, is say, do these three things. You will keep your heart from drifting. But I wouldn't be any better than Nehemiah. Here's Nehemiah, one of the best reformers that we can read of in Scripture. One of the best leaders that we see. Was his reforms enough to keep Israel from sliding? Was his, was his reforms enough to, to keep Israel exactly where they, where they should have been? No, it wasn't because you see it over, over, and over again. And the purpose of this book is to really, it's supposed to leave a little bit of a bad taste in our mouth. It's supposed to point us to the fact that you and I are powerless to do all these good things that they were supposed to do in our own strength. Even if we have a really charismatic, really strong leader who's always reminding us of these things that we should be doing, and sometimes we do them well, sometimes we don't, even if we have everything perfectly set in place from that standpoint, we still are powerless to keep them. Why? Because it's based on something that's on our own strength. It's based on a religious uh, way of doing life. And for you and I, who have put our hope and faith in Jesus, we have a different hope. We have a different thing that keeps us. Now, here's where it is. Look at Hebrews. 
and we'll end here. I keep saying we're going to end here, so they're lies. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 through 20. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as what? An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. An anchor for the soul that is firm and secure. An anchor that is not based on the reforms of man or Nehemiah, no matter how much hair pulling he does, no matter how much hand laying he does, no matter how much threatening he does, the anchor that you and I have for the soul is secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. If you know what the curtain is, was this veil that separated man from God, the presence. But it, this anchor goes behind this curtain. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. See, here's the beautiful thing about Nehemiah chapter 13. It points us to Jesus. It lets us know that you and I are powerless to kind of try to keep from drifting in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own religion, in our own reforms. And it says you can't do them on your own. There's only one anchor that keeps your inner tube from floating down the Guadalupe River. It's Jesus, the anchor of your soul. Remember how Nehemiah said, remember me, O God. Remember me that I, I did this, I did all this good stuff. Remember when I, I kicked out uh, Tobiah and Sanballat and I threw all his stuff out of the room and remember me when I started pulling hair out of people and I laid hands and remember when I, when I brought the reforms back to the Sabbath. Remember me, oh God. And there's this hope for Nehemiah, hoping somehow that all the good things that he did, that God will somehow give favor to him. But for you and I, we have a hope like Paul and I'm going to read it. It says this in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It says this in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom heavenly kingdom, to him be the glory forever and ever and amen. Paul has a different kind of remember me. He's not saying because of the works I did, because of Jesus. And for you and I this morning, we have an anchor of our soul who is Jesus. We don't have to hope somehow, God, look at my good deeds. Look at all the good stuff I've done. Please, please, please remember me. We can, like Paul, say this morning, nope, I have an anchor of my soul. It's not based on my works. It's based on the one perfect one who fulfilled it for me. Will you stand with me this morning?